Good morning, Grace. <laughs> what a wonderful set. Thank you. Uh, sometimes there is a single salient point that can make sense out of things that feel like nonsense. Sometimes a single fact can change all of your understanding. I'm sure you've been in a situation or a circumstance where you're, what? I don't get it. And then somebody adds this one point and, oh, now I get it. I completely understand. It's different than I thought. Uh, you probably saw the movie Sixth Sense. Spoiler, I'm going to tell you how it ends, but you've had 23 years to watch the movie. So <laughs> anyway, it, it starts with a Bruce Willis character and in the opening scene, the first scene one, see him coming home from a dinner with his wife. He's a psychologist and someone, one of his clients has actually invaded his house and he's hallucinating and has hallucinations and then accuses Bruce Willis of not helping him but making it worse. So he brings out a gun and shoots Bruce Willis and then shoots himself. Wow, that's a, quite an opening scene. Well, scene two, months later, Willis has now picked up a client. He's a nine-year-old boy named Cole. And, and Cole's having difficulty in life because of what's going on in his particular hallucinations. But it's different now. I mean, there's, it's subtle, though. Something's off. It's like listening to your favorite song on a piano that's like hasn't been tuned. Like his wife, Bruce Willis's wife, is, is distant and cold, melancholy. She won't even talk to Bruce. And then other people completely ignore Bruce altogether. Anyway, uh, Cole confines, little boy, confines in Willis that he is able to see dead people. He says, I see dead people. And, and dead people only see what they want to see and they don't even know they're dead. As you imagine, Willis is skeptical, but he comes to find out that the boy's telling the truth. He does see ghosts, and he tells the boy, you need to go and approach them and help them through their journey, and that will cause them to be set free and, and move on to the next life. And Cole does that and finds out a kind of a purpose in life. And the last conversation Cole has with Bruce is that he needs to talk to his wife. When she's sleeping, she'll understand. Bruce goes home, and his wife is there in bed. She's sleeping, and she's talking in her sleep, and he lays down next to her and hears her say, why did you leave me? Why did you go? And in her hand, she releases Bruce Willis's wedding ring. And then Willis recalls that the dead only see what they want to see, and they don't even know they're dead. And he realizes he's dead. And that helps him understand who he is. And it, he tells his wife he loves her and sets her free. She can move on. And he moves on to the next life. But I'm, what I'm trying to tell you here is that in the entire movie, Bruce Willis is dead. And I don't know how we're supposed to know that, except in the opening scene, he's shot. And there's a boy that says, I talk to dead people. And it's the only person Bruce Willis ever talks to in the movie. But besides those two facts, point is, once you realize that, you go, I've, like, now it all makes sense differently. I want to watch the movie again and see it for its, what's true about it. All right. Point is this. Today we're looking at the linchpin fact of the mega story of all human history. Today we're going to look at a single salient point 
that makes sense out of what we would consider nonsense in life. And God's great plan of creation from a garden in Genesis all the way to a throne room in Revelation, it doesn't come together without this single point. And it's not just the point of the storyline. It doesn't just make sense out of all of creation. It makes sense out of who God is. It helps define Yahweh for who he truly is. It's a single word. It's the word incarnation. Incarnation. It's the Christian doctrinal belief that God becomes man. And it's a radical Christian claim, the incarnation. And it defines all of human life and experience, all of human history. It defines God and it defines individuals. Because when a person is able to grasp just aspects of the incarnation, and that beauty penetrates our soul, it will alter our life. We're going to look at a paragraph today that some call the pinnacle of all human thought. Who's with me? How's my introduction? Do I have your attention? Yeah. Let's look at John chapter 1, 14 through 17. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, John bore witness about him, Jesus, and he, he cried out, this is the one whom I said, he who comes after me surpasses me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given to us through Moses and grace and truth came from Jesus Christ. And no one has ever seen God, the one and only God, who is at the Father's side, Jesus, he has made God known. The incarnation is the doctrine that the God of the universe, in the Bible, he says his name is Yahweh. He is beyond time and space, and it's the belief that he has become human with us and dwells among us. The word became flesh and lived among us so that we might experience the glory of God. There it is. And the incarnation is the hope of all humanity. Even the movie, like The Wonderful Life, it wouldn't even be a wonderful life if it didn't end with everyone in town singing, Hark, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And I understand it's easy to connect Christmas with family and, and presents and some time off from work. That's not what Christmas means. Jane, or John here is going to tell us the meaning of Christmas is God in a body. Yahweh as a baby. That's the doctrine. 114 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son begotten from the father full of grace and truth. The word and flesh. In Greek, those words are literally touching each other. They are right next to each other. Word, flesh, side by side. 
word. That means Jesus is the voice of God. He is, he is the revelation of God. And if you want to know God, you have to know it through Jesus. You can know, a, you can know about God, I guess, like you can know about George, like I know about George Washington, just know facts about him. He's never spoken with me. I don't know him. And you can't know God unless you have had Jesus speak to you through your Bible. Those red letters, those are his word. The word is flesh. He is the ultimate revelation of God. He is the clearest expression of who God is and what he is like. If you want a relationship with God, it will be through Jesus Christ because he is God. The word, flesh. Flesh. He doesn't even say he's human here. He says it's, he's, he's meat. <laughs> you know? And the most difficult part of the incarnation for us to grasp, the reason it feels like it's a contradiction, instead it's a paradox, is because of this dramatic contrast between the nature of God and the nature of flesh, word, flesh, God, body. The, the, the infinite, right, omnipowerful God that created all things has now become vulnerable. The transcendent word is approachable. What? Christianity is radically different from every religion in the world. Right here. Christmas incarnation. The great I am. Even his name. His name, formerly, I am that I am, and he's People will say one of the reasons that he says I am that I am is I'm not dependent on anything. I'm the uncaused cause. You can't define me. I am completely independent of all things created. And then he hears our cries and comes and becomes like us as a tiny infant, completely and utterly dependent. The independent becomes dependent. The word becomes fragile. And it's not like he came at the risk of being killed. He came with the full knowledge that his purpose was to be killed, to know death, because that's the cost of sin. And so the, an application, certainly one of the applications for the incarnation is an understanding that God understands us. He understands life as a human. He's, he's transcendent, but he's become eminent. And when we talk to him, and we should talk to him regularly about all things, because he is the great counselor, because he knows what it's like to be us. We sing in the Christmas carols, one of the titles that's given to the, the prophecy of the Messiah coming is wonderful counselor. And how does he become a wonderful counselor? Like us. It says clearly that in Hebrews chapter 2. For this very reason, Jesus had to be made like a man, fully human in every way, in order, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful priest, high priest in the service of God, and that he might make atonement for our sins of the people. He had to be a person to make atonement for people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. A wonderful counselor is a person that has overcome a malady that we have, 
but they've had it and they overcame it. And you go to them and they say to you, that man or woman says, oh, I, I understand exactly what you're going through. And we can say that about Yahweh because of Jesus becoming like man, that he would become faithful and merciful high priest because he knows what it's like to suffer in temptation. And so he's going to help us with that as well. It's easy to see in, in Jesus, you know, the God of all creation, right? Transcendent, majestic, out there, other. But also we have with this revelation from the word that he has been tempted, that he's been hungry, he's been lonely, <laughs> isolated, that he's been persecuted, he's suffered injustice. He had to face fear. He was separated from the Father. So the point is, do you feel betrayed? Jesus knows how you feel. Do you feel persecuted? He's been there as well. Loneliness is like a depth of loneliness that goes into despair. Jesus says, yeah. Mm -hmm. And we know that God knows what that is like because Jesus became like us. And so the incarnation calls us to call upon him and say, look, I'm going through this or that. And you know what that's like. And some of you are thinking, well, look, I like, what about when we cry out to him in a way that is absolutely desperate for life or the life of someone that we love? Or something that we need God to say yes to. And God responds with, no. You're going to have to live this out. Does Jesus know what that's like? He does. He does. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he appeals to the Father. If there's any way that we could save all of mankind without me being isolated from the love of the Father. Without being crucified on that cross. Let this cup of suffering pass. And the father comes and says, no. You drink that cup all the way to the bottom. So he even knows that. He's a wonderful counselor because the word became flesh. Incarnation. Another purpose for the incarnation we can see in this passage here is so that we can see the glory of God. Look what it says again in 14, but look, watch for that. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. Old Testament readers, Jewish scholars would look at this and be dumbfounded because it says that we have beheld the glory of God. And they would say the glory of God is, is the most potent, dangerous circumstance that you could ever put yourself in. There's no place more devastating in all of creation than the very presence of the holy God. <laughs> and so how could that possibly be happening in our lives? Well, it's, it says here from this passage that we do that when we, when we have an encounter with Jesus. This passage is more than likely hearkening back to an experience that Moses has with God in Exodus 33 and 34. Some of your study Bibles will actually reference that. They'll tell you to go back there. Let me tell you about that story. Exodus 33, 
uh, Moses has come back right after the, the if you know, the, the golden calf incident. And he throws the Ten Commandments down. Those rocks are shattered. He's back negotiating for the health of Israel, and he's given the second set of Ten Commandments. And after that exchange, Moses says this to God. Because they're so close at this point. He said, God, show me your glory. He's begging for that experience. And Yahweh says to him, I will show my goodness to you. I will have my goodness pass before you. I will state my name in your presence. But he says, you cannot see my face because no man can see my face and live. And so Yahweh, to accommodate Moses' request, says, I've got to put a safe place for you. And there's a crevice in these two giant rocks that he puts Moses there. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk by you and I'll put my hand over your face and I'll say my name, Yahweh, Yahweh, good and loving God, compassionate, those sorts of attributes. And then after I pass, I'll release that and you can see me from behind, but that's as good as you're ever going to get. It's the only way you're going to survive this event. Scholars will say, John is referencing that and saying Jesus is the fulfillment of that longing. He is the, he is the experience of the glory of God. The highest longing in our souls is to be in the presence of the holiness of God. It, we have that with Jesus. The yearnings of our spirit is to see the face of God. And John says Jesus is the face of God. That's what the incarnation is about. It is, it is the word made flesh. And now we can behold its glory. And we can live and we can survive it. And how does that happen? It says in 14, the glory as of the only son begotten of the father. And he's inserted the word begotten there to make sure you understand that we know that that means that he's not similar to God. He's the absolute essence of the father. Same essence, all grace, all truth. They are equal. You can actually see that you're equal with the Father, equal with the Son, because there's an exchange that takes place in John chapter 5 where that's put out there in front of men and women to understand the theology of that. In John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man at the pool of Bethesda, and it's on the Sabbath. So Jesus is being persecuted for doing <laughs> miracles on the Sabbath. And how does Jesus defend himself? Watch this. 16 and 17 of chapter 5, he says, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work. His work, I'm sorry, is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working. Now, because he's said his father is God, this is highest of all treason. This is ultimate heresy. And if you don't believe me, look how they respond and what they say. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill Jesus. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so they picked up stones to kill him, as they should have. Because if you say Yahweh is your father, it means that you are equal with that father, the begotten son. So in Jesus, we see the glory of God in Jesus doing only the things that God can do. Jesus creates and recreates. Only God can do that. 
Uh, Jesus will be the judge of all mankind. Only God does that. Jesus is going to forgive people. Only God can forgive, so he does. Jesus will allow people to worship him. You can only worship God, Yahweh, because he is. So we see that Jesus is revealed as equal and of the same essence of God, but here's what we want to see as well, is we see what God is like. We see the Trinity, Yahweh, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, how they deal in our own lives. (laughs) We might not be able to relate to his deity, but look how God addresses children in the life of Jesus. Like very few people ever have in all of history. He, He exalts them. He gives them equal respect. He lifts them up. Look how he deals with people that have handicaps. Look how Yahweh negotiates people that are outsiders. Look how Yahweh even treats uh, a soldier from an occupying army that is not Israeli. Look how God thinks about corrupt religious leaders that are teaching things about God that are just lies. That's what you learn about how Yahweh works in our midst. That Jesus is full of grace. And this is how Yahweh responds when he's full of grace. I mean, one beautiful picture. This is Yahweh God and a a, a former prostitute that has been touched by the forgiveness of Jesus. She crashes a religious kind of a, you know, right, all the right people meeting and that Jesus is in. And she comes in, falls down at the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ. She's weeping with happiness. Her tears are washing the feet of Jesus. She dries those same feet with her hair because she has been returned to, with dignity. She has, she's been granted honor from Yahweh, God in the flesh. Yahweh full of grace and Yahweh full of truth. Jesus full of truth. He fulfills the absolute obedience to the righteous like declaration of the Father, the righteous will of the Father. And no one can find sin in, in the life of Jesus. When he's, when he's standing before Pilate, Pilate says, I, he says, uh, I find no basis to charge, uh, to bring any charge against him. One of the men on the cross next to Jesus <laughs> rebukes the other man and says, this man is clearly innocent. The Roman centurion that's overlooking and supervising the crucifixion of Jesus Christ after Jesus dies and the ground shakes. And a Roman guard says, the centurion says, surely this is the righteous one. Surely this is the son of God. No one can find sin. Even death has no claim on Jesus because death could not find a sin that he would have to pay for. And so death couldn't keep him in the grave. That is the fullness of the truth of Yahweh. And all of that is so that, verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The incarnation of God becoming flesh, his life, his death, his resurrection, the God-man. In that fullness, 
we receive all of that fullness, grace upon grace. The moral perfections of Jesus Christ are given to us, grace as a gift. All other religions go right here at the incarnation to die because they can't offer this, only Christianity. All of the fullness of Jesus Christ have been received. We have received it. Okay, perfect tense. It means it's done. It's complete. It's a perfect verb. Paul puts it like this. He's more verbose. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing that is in Christ Grace upon grace, gift upon gift. Every religion, if you do these activities, you just might have an audience with the deity. No one knows for sure. Christianity, because he has done those things and you have received those as a gift, you've already been given that status. Now go live your life to the glory of God. Verse 17 says, the law was given to us through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus the Christ. The law from Moses didn't help us. The law was the problem. And Jesus is the solution. He's the solution. And it says because of the grace. And I said it, but like grace means gift. If, if you earn a gift, it's not a, it's not a gift anymore. It's a, it's a salary. And, and so if this changes the way you see God, you have to, if you look at Yahweh like a school teacher or a coach or a boss, you know, where you do, you know, a lot of good things and you get merits and grades or whatever, that's, you know, that might make you a better person. That will not get you to endure being in the very presence of God. That requires a gift of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ, death and resurrection. That's a gift upon gift. It's grace upon grace. And you can only have that in Jesus, the very glory of God. And we see the very glory of God in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten God, who is at the Father's side, at the Father's bosom. Jesus has made God known. The incarnation is like, uh, this is one uh, pastor put it this like, the incarnation is baby talk. It, it, it's God making himself knowable and accessible at the, at the simplest levels, at the most in, endurable ways. Because we can't endure what Moses experienced, that would destroy us. But we get to see the face of Jesus and live because God provided that. What I like about this is, like, look at the picture that John uses to help us understand the intimacy that Jesus has with the Father and we have with him. You have to know this about John. John's nickname in the Gospels is the one who Jesus loved. Okay. Okay. So, and then at the Last Supper, there must have been, like, a, a pause in the action, but John is right next to Jesus and then just lays his head. A grown man lays his head on the chest of Jesus, on his bosom. And that's how close John was to Jesus. 
And John is trying to explain to us what that is like in the eternal state of the Trinity. And he says, Jesus here is at the Father's bosom, a place of honor and favor and unity and safety. That's who Jesus is. That's the glory of God revealed. And we get to experience that. This incarnation of Jesus Christ has absolutely altered history. You can't look at human history the same. And what's, what's interesting is if you look at the life of Jesus, like what do we know about him, really? 33-year-old man. We, we know about pretty much three years of his life in ministry and, and one day as a teenager. We, we, we don't have any of his writings. The only writing we know about that he did was in the dirt. <laughs> it was brushed away. And of the three years of ministry, that's a, you know, like a thousand days. We don't have a thousand days of his teaching and, and life. If you total up, you know, the amount of hours in the Gospels, it comes out to about 52 days total. And those aren't like full days. Those are snippets and short stories and a paragraph now and then. And yet, and yet... He altered all of human history. And why is that? Because he is the glory of Yahweh revealed. And that's all we need to know. And when we understand that incarnation, when that gets inside of us, when the beauty of the incarnation pierces our soul, it absolutely, completely changes the essence of our spirit. And then we want to change everything around us to experience something like what we had in an audience with the glory of God. In other words, we're changed and then we start changing. We start living, like he rules with truth and grace. We start trying to rule everything with truth and, truth and grace. Like what happens when people come into an encounter with this incarnation? How many songs have been written about the glory of God in Jesus Christ? I mean, just think about that. Or, or, or the paintings throughout human history are not the most beautiful ones, those depicting Jesus doing something that an incarnate God would do? <laughs> the libraries, the books that have been written about Jesus still libraries all around the world and the most marvelous buildings that will take your breath away are built to the glory of God because of Jesus Christ word flesh the rebirth in a human being causes us to want to rebirth the human experience we Christians bring civilization to chaos and have been doing this for 2,000 years in truth and in grace. You look at the history of education and you're going to see a dominant influence by believers bringing like element preschool all the way to the highest levels of education because of the glory revealed in Jesus Christ is what's motivating them. In, in the context of bringing all grace to the world, look at how many hospitals in almost every continent in the world, all that's left, I think, is Antarctica that I know of, right? K 
counseling centers, relief organizations, all seem to have a cross on them in some way because we want to bring all grace to the world because that doctrine has pierced our souls. Christmas is about the word becoming flesh, the glory of God that Moses could not endure and we experience because Yahweh disguises himself as a baby. And there's only three ways to rationally live your life in light of these truths. There's only three ways to respond to Christmas. One, uh, this is just right out of G.K. Chesterton. People have been using this for 100 years almost. Jesus is a man that is going around telling people that he's the creator, that he's the judge, that he's the forgiver, allows people to worship him because he says he is Yahweh, the glory of God revealed. And if he says he's that and he's not, he could be crazy because you have to be crazy to say those sorts of things. And if he's crazy, you just need to acknowledge that and disregard whatever else he says. He might actually believe it, and he's a liar. He's like insanely power-driven. Power he's wicked and evil. And if that were true about Jesus, then run away. Don't have anything to do with him. Whatever he says to do, do the opposite. But what if he's not lying? And what if he's not crazy? If he is who he says he is, then the only logical response is to take everything that we are and everything that we have and run and throw it at his feet and say, command me. You are my king. I am your servant. I will do whatever you want. <laughs> In other words, if the incarnation is true, it's all or nothing. There, there's no room for you like liking. I like the teachings of Jesus. Nope, you can't. I'm a fan of Jesus. I'm going to pick and choose what I'm going to respond to. It's not there for to be taken. If he's who he is, then we just say every choice is going to be what do I do to make the very most out of trying to glorify my life, to glorify God with my life. That's He's either a liar or he's evil, and so all my choices are about personal comfort. Or he's telling the truth, and the word became flesh, and everything is a means to an end to glorify God. That's what Christmas means. <laughs> and before you stop and pause and think about, oh, my complete surrender, could Yahweh have made himself any more approachable? Any more, my God understandable, any more vulnerable than to come to us as a baby whose crib is a cow feeding trough. He's making it easy. He's a servant king. He's a good, good father. And so on Christmas, the single word that changes the meaning of life, history, God, and our souls is the word incarnation. And it demands absolute surrender. So this Christmas, what do you say? We all surrender.
to Jesus, the Word that's flesh. Could you join me in that prayer? Oh, dear God, what this says about you, the extent of your love, the, ba- the, the, the limitless, boundaryless attempts that you have to, to make things right between man and, and your holiness, that you would so love us that you would send your only begotten son. Whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. They would not perish. And while we can't completely grasp or even maybe begin to understand this incarnation, we know enough to know that you understand us and we come to you with our needs and our concerns and our cries. And we know enough that you should be worshiped and obeyed. And we come to you this Christmas with maybe a better understanding of who you are so that we might understand who the Trinity is through the face of Jesus, the glory of God revealed. And we celebrate that. We we enjoy and, and marvel at your beauty and love. Let that love transform us that we might live our lives in full truth and full grace, just like you, that we become like Christ in all of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.